Hello, everybody. Welcome to the subtext. Uh, if you are a first-time listener, welcome aboard. It's nice to have you. You have stumbled upon a treasure trove of hours and hours of playwright interviews from our archives. So if you are a first-time listener, uh, you've got some stuff to listen to to occupy any hours you might have to kill. I don't know why you would. Uh, I am here on my twice-a-day pilgrimage around the north side of Chicago, walking my dog and killing some of the time myself. It's windy here. Who would have thought? I wish somebody told me it was like that here before I moved here. Uh, I should have started off by saying, hi, my name is Brian. This is the Subtext Podcast, brought to you by America Theater Magazine, a program of Theater Communications Group. For basically everybody in the theater industry, March was the worst month of our lives. Theaters closed all over the country, one play canceled after another, and what started to hit me the hardest were the world premieres that disappeared. It's so freaking hard to get a play produced, to see so many go away was painful. So I decided to dedicate this episode to some of those productions. I went on social media, and started collecting plays that lost their world premieres or first productions. What we have in this episode is excerpts from 15 of those plays. Many of them are pieces performed by the actors who were originating the roles, which is pretty cool. In a perfect world, haha, I know, but if there's any justice in the world, each of these plays will find a future life, and I know a couple of them already have some future possibilities. Oh yeah, one other thing. Uh, I did ask people to call in and record introductions to these pieces, so each one is introed by a different person. Thank you to everybody who called in. Okay, I think that's it. I hope you enjoy this. This is Norm Reynolds speaking. I'm introducing a monologue from Beowulf, Her Story by James Kenna, which was originally scheduled to open at the Edinburgh Fringe this summer. Beowulf, Her Story is a new play reimagining the epic of Beowulf. <clears throat> the show was slated to premiere at the Edinburgh Fringe this summer with the Fellowship of the Ravens. The youthfully spirited adventure follows Beowulf and the Bee Team subverting the epic tale to rediscover heroism. In this monologue, young Beowulf prepares to face Grendel's mother, who lost her child to Beowulf's hand. While preparing to face her foe, Beowulf must also grapple with her father's lingering legacy. This monologue is read by Grace Foytek. My dad? My pops? Big old Ethgal? He left. No blaze of glory, no dying words, just gone one day. Passing dream, morning moves on. I remember him, though. Or I have memories, impressions, little flashes of images, but I don't know if they're real. Because I shouldn't remember his voice. But sometimes, when I'm alone, I'll hear him, just in my head. And I'll talk through things, get his wisdom, stupid little stuff, you know? But when I really need him, when there is darkness, all I get is silence. 
a solitary communion, a halfway wish, a sudden neck-deep flash freeze, and my memories might not be anything more than what someone else told me. Maybe I don't remember him at all. Not even his face. He took that from me when he left. And it's so stupid, but sometimes I wonder if I'm a spinning image, you know? It's a game I play with myself, turning corners on random days, hoping that I'll run into some stranger who knew him, and they'll stop me and they'll say, Oh my goodness, you must be Ethgal's child. I knew him, and just by looking at you, I know he'd be so proud of you. I hate myself for wanting that. But I can't help it. He's a piece of me. I must have inherited something, right? My laugh, my hands, my dreams. He had dreams. Something pulled him away, so I know he ought to have had. Do you think dreams change when you become a parent? I'd like to think for a moment that he really thought of me. That there was a reason. Because I have this memory. A fragment. I, I, I can't remember his face, but I can see his mouth. A very warm smile. I remember that. A voice like the end of the world. You're my Beowulf. You're my legacy. And you'll save the world without me. And I'm so close now. It feels like something my body knows how to do, but my brain lost the memory of the words in my mouth. I, I've tried to do it by myself, and you've seen that I, I, I fail. It makes me question everything, and all of a sudden my chest is tight, and I can barely breathe. I just want it so bad. It's all I've ever wanted, to be what my dad wanted for me. It's my legacy. Can't you see that? It's important. Legacy. It's all I have. Hi, my name is Evelina Friedman, and here is a monologue from the play A Hit Dog Will Holler by Inda Craig Galvan. It was originally scheduled to premiere in May with Playwrights Arena in Los Angeles. In the play, Gina suffers from an acute form of agoraphobia that causes her to hear a roaring monster every time she opens her front door. This is especially challenging because as a public figure engaged in various political and social movements, her job is literally to go out and be amongst people, which she stopped doing entirely. In this monologue, Gina is on the phone with her book editor explaining why she's missed yet another deadline. The monologue is read by Sherry Vanden Heuvel. Hey, so, I hear there's talk of impeachment again. That's fun. Look, I promised you an interview with Drusy Drew, and that's still going to happen. Just having some scheduling conflicts, and her people have been so... Yeah. 
Listen, Constance, I'm going to be real with you. I I need to take care of a friend. She's sick, and not just sick, she lost her way. She's lost everything. She can't go out. She can't make a difference. And that's the one thing she got into all of this for. I, I think, I think that was the hard to remember now. It's been so long since she had to be real with herself with anyone. And so she forgot that. She forgot all about that in an effort to because because she needed a roof and takeout and red bottoms. <laughs> so she forgot. It was easy to forget. And when she remembers, when she does remember the why and the what and the who, then it all comes flooding back, screaming back, roaring. She realizes how far she's come or how far away she's gone or she's gone. She's not her. She's not helping. She's not doing shit. She's not who she thought she'd be or who they thought she should be. She's tired. But she can't be tired. She's got strong African blood. Can't be tired. She's a woman. Can't be tired. She knows how to endure. It's in her motherfucking DNA. Can't be tired. If she's tired, then she's... She's wrong. Somehow, it's her who's wrong. She's... She's stuck on a couch. She won't get off the damn couch. She won't go out. She's forgotten what the sky looks like. She's forgotten that the clouds look like sailboats. And now she hates herself for being tired and for being sick. Ridiculous, really. She hates herself for letting them win. She's... She's... She... Hi, my name is Kenneth Jones, and I'm introducing a scene from Life on the Moon by Anna Tatelman, which was supposed to run this spring at Detroit Repertory Theater.
in my home state of Michigan. In this scene, Spencer, a 20-year-old member of the Army, has just arrived home for Christmas. His sister, Piper, who is 18 years old and has autism, is busy arranging toys across the living room when Spencer enters. The role of Spencer is performed by Dan Johnson, and Piper is performed by Catherine Mahard. Hey, Piper. Spencer will come home at 5.15 on Saturday, December 21st. Yeah, I know. I'm home a little earlier than what your whiteboard says. 12 minutes early. Yeah. Well, hey, I saved you a peanut packet from the airline. That's okay. It'll keep if you want it later. I've got to unpack now, but I'll see you at dinner. Dinner's at 15 minutes after 6, 72 minutes away. I haven't been gone that long, Piper. I still know all our routines. But thanks for the reminder. Can I have a hug? Okay. All done. Yeah. Okay. See you in 72 minutes. 71 minutes. Right. 71. Silly Spencer. Silly Spencer. Uh-oh. Oh, sorry. What is it you want, Mary? It's okay. You're okay. See? Your toys look just like they did before. What do you want? You want the moon? Lower your voice. Everything's fine. Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, Piper, let's tell a story. Once upon a time, Spencer came home from the army for Christmas and wanted to say hello to Piper. But Spencer is a silly guy, and he knocked over one of Piper's toys. He didn't mean to, but accidents just happen sometimes. Like when Alice made the Queen of Hearts angry, right? Remember how the Queen's face got red and she started yelling? She was angry, like you are now. But Alice didn't mean to upset the Queen, just like Spencer didn't mean to upset Piper. And everything worked out fine in the end. So then Spencer fixed the toy, and Piper was all better. The end? Hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'll give you the moon, Mary. Yeah, I'd like that, Piper. I'd like it if you gave me the moon. Gravity just weighs us both down. <laughs> I'll see you in 79... Five, whatever, minutes. Martha Wade Speckety. I'm introducing a moment from a play titled Town Hall by Karadad Svitch, which was originally scheduled to open at Red Tape Theater in Chicago, Illinois in May. In Town Hall, a group of individuals gather, just as we sometimes do in the theater, to work trauma, pain, grief, disappointments, large and small, in an effort to heal. 
there have been wars, there's been catastrophe, there's been violence, and in its shadow, a play occurs. This is a play about the so-called small things that may or may not allow us to hang on when everything feels as if it's gone. This scene is performed by Taylor Wisham. It was a pig. A marzipan pig for Christmas. My parents gave it to me. They wrapped it in shiny red paper. They put it under the tree next to the other boxes. I tore through the paper. The pig stared at me. It seemed happy. Like it really wanted to be devoured. It seemed serene, too. Not like at the zoo where the pigs look really battered, sick, upset, and hungry. I hate the zoo. This pig looked like it had a smile. A Christmas smile. (laughs) I thought it might have something to do with history. Like, how many pigs did this pig know? How many other marzipan pigs had been in his family? I was a child, and I thought these things. Just like I thought of my neighbors who had nothing who had had nothing for a long time, even though some said we lived in one of the richest places in the world. (laughs) I knew they had nothing. I felt awful for them, but I couldn't do anything for them because we had little more than nothing. That's all, just a little more. Useless. My parents were always talking about money. People hate when you talk about money, especially about not having it. They make faces, they fidget, they throw their hands up in the air, or they look at their phone. They pretend they have an important phone call. They don't want to feel responsible, you see, because they think you're asking them for money when you talk about not having it. I tried to tell my parents, but they wouldn't listen because they thought they were just being honest when they talked about money to other people. They thought if someone asked them how they were, they should answer. Actually answer. They didn't understand rhetorical. They thought people wanted to have a real conversation. An honest dialogue. (laughs) My parents had no idea how the world worked. I felt sorry for them sometimes. They trusted people, you see. They wanted me to trust people too, but I couldn't. Not even with a marzipan pig in my hands. Not even when I put it in my mouth. Not even when I ate its head and its little feet and saved the body for last. I knew no one could be trusted. Not even the gods, wherever they were. Looking down at us, laughing at us, mocking us, tormenting us, torturing us, making of us fools, servants, peasants, and slaves, fucking peasants. I knew we were alone, and nothing could save us, not trust, not love, not even being here in places like these. Halls of forgiveness, fucking words. Looking at each other, looking at our hands, wondering why we're still here on this earth when everything has stopped making sense. Like that song, <laughs> like that old, old song that I can't get out of my brain. Ugh. <sighs> Hurts.
This is Megan Kelly. I'm introducing a scene from Daba on Devon Avenue by Madri Shaker. The play was commissioned by Victory Gardens and directed by Che Yu. It was meant to open at Victory Gardens on April 3, 2020, but was forced to close 10 days into rehearsals. Daba on Devon Avenue is about a family restaurant that's struggling to survive, located in the South Asian heart of Chicago, Devon Avenue. The patriarch of this family, Niraj, will fight to save his business at any cost. His parents survived the violent partition of India and Pakistan in 1947 and moved to the state to give him a new home. He built this restaurant with his late wife as a celebration of their Sindhi heritage. Now he hopes to pass this restaurant on to his daughters, but they don't seem to want it. This scene is performed by Anish Jetmalani. Maybe you're right. Maybe there isn't a place for me. There wasn't really a place for my parents back in Sindh. Dadima's entire family was killed when they tried to cross the border into India. She was the only one who survived. There was no place for her in the refugee camps, but she found a corner to sleep in anyway. There was no place for my father to find a job in Amritsar, but he did, at the Daba where he eventually met my mother. There was no place and no possibility for them to have a child, but they had me nevertheless. And when we got here, we fought for every inch of land and money, for respect. There was no possibility for someone like your mother to pick someone like me, but she did. There was no place for a restaurant that served our kind of food, but we carved this out against all odds and built a home for our community, for you. We claimed it, didn't let it go. No one ever gives us a place, Sindhu, we fight for it. We earn it. We are the custodians of something precious. Our heritage, our family, our legacy and memory. Everything that your mother wanted for you girls. You made it clear a long time ago that none of that matters to you. But it does to me. Heather Vanderwellen. The following is a monologue from Emma by Kate Hamill, based on the novel by Jane Austen. The play was originally scheduled to world premiere at the Guthrie in Minneapolis this spring. In this clip, the titular character, the fallible Emma, is brought face to face with her arch nemesis, the most perfect woman alive, Jane Fairfax. This piece is performed by Amelia Pedlo. Jane Fairfax. Let's do a little exposition, shall we? Tiresome Jane Fairfax is tiresome Miss Bates, tiresome niece, and because she's the only girl child in a whole family of mistresses of schools, she is the most irritatingly well-behaved, annoyingly accomplished, dreadfully perfect lady alive. Just look at her. Not a hair out of place, not a toe out of line, not a drop of blood in her veins. The air is frigid in the heights of Mount Fairfax. But I have not yet told you the worst, the very 
worst thing about her. The worst thing about Jane Fairfax is that since we are both ladies of a certain age from a small town and have been thrown together and held up against each other time after time, everybody assumes that we are the best of friends. And thus, bravely casting our fear of frostbite aside, I have to act like this. Miss Fairfax, what a delight to see you in the county again. We have been desolate, devastated, destroyed without you. My name is Cindy Marie Jenkins, and I'm introducing a scene from a play titled Fabulous Monsters by Diana Burbano, which was originally scheduled to open at Playwrights Arena in Los Angeles in October. Fabulous Monsters is a play about women in punk rock. Latinx women were a huge and influential part of the Los Angeles punk scene, and this play puts their stories front and center. The opening scene, Los Angeles, 1977. Two young Latinas meet at a band audition. They size each other up. The scene is performed by Chanel Garcia as Lulu and Juliana Stephanie Ojeda as Sally. How'd your audition go? You told me to put on more makeup. I'm sorry. Slade? It's Sally. He wants me to come back later for the callbacks. He stared at my boobs the whole time. Fucker. Well... Whatever, I'll show him my boobs. Hypnotize him with him and then eat him. You play like a guy. I play like a girl. Take a compliment, bitch. According to Rolling Stone, there are only men, homos, and chick singers in rock and roll. What's a girl? Someone who doesn't give a shit about Rolling Stone. Girl. (laughs) I want to knock you out and steal that jacket. (laughs) I I fixed it up with dental floss and spray paint. Nearly killed myself with the fumes. I'm too glam. Your look is better. It's not a look. Fuck this guy and his corporate bullshit. His bands are good. They're Tiger Beat Top 40 crap. He wants to do girls this time because he thinks we're a novelty. And because he wants to do girls. Come to the mask and check out my band. What do you play? I sing. Lead. Defo. But I play some guitar. Piano and uh, an accordion. Ouch. Don't make fun. You ever heard of klezmer music? It's old Jew punk rock. No, I hear it all the time at quinceaneras. It drives me batshit. Huh. Hang with me until your callback. We can go to Tower and get the new Richard Hell album. I don't have a car. Oh, wow. That sucks. I'll make sure you get back. Where do you live? Royal Heights. Where's that? Where the Mexicans live. Thank you for not saying you're Spanish. That's some race-hating bullshit. My parents are very traditional. They don't like me playing guitar. (laughs) Mine are middle-class hippies, full of shit and guilt, so they leave me alone. Lucky. I've been sitting out here all afternoon listening. You're the only chick who played an original. I have a ton of stuff. He told me to come back with a T-Rex song. Fuck this guy. Play with me. 
Don't dick me around. Do I look like I have a dick? Oh, definitely not. Rawlings and I'm introducing a monologue from The Night Witches by Rachel Bublitz, which had been scheduled for its world premiere in March. The Night Witches of the 588th Night Bomber Regiment flew in planes made of canvas and wood and dropped their bombs on their German enemy every 15 minutes through the night to keep them from sleeping. They were constantly being shuffled and moved to perform new duties. Mechanics would become navigators, navigators would become pilots, and pilots would become commanders. On this night, two new navigators prepare to fly in combat for the first time. Toward the end of the play, after most of the experienced soldiers have shared stories of excitement, romance, ridiculous takeoffs and mud and more to help bolster their morale, Marta, a seasoned navigator, is left alone with the commanding officer and opens up about what she experienced on her first night in combat. The Night Witches uses movement, song, and lyrically styled dialogue to follow brave women through one fateful evening during the war. This scene is performed by Abigail Knighton. My first fight, my first combat fight, that is. I don't exactly remember all of it. It was frozen and loud, so very loud, flashes of light, and it seemed as soon as we landed we were taking off again all night. It was so cold that during one of the fights, my hand stuck to a bomb as I tried to push it free. After all of it, just after dawn, I saw the smallest black dot in the snow as we were landing our last flight. It was, it was close to our airfield, and I couldn't make out what it could be. Back in the bunk, the black spot wouldn't leave my mind, and after tossing and turning, I went out to find whatever it could be. The sun was weak, but in the sky. It didn't take long to find it. Him. A boy. A skinny, frozen-faced boy with the largest eyes I have ever seen. I had my emergency sack with me and planned to hand over all of my rations, which wasn't much more than a bar of chocolate and sugar and milk. I thought it would make him smile. But, but when I reached the boy, he says... Have you seen my father? Please. Mama's dying. If he comes, she'll be okay. I know she will. Please. I left the chocolate, the milk. I marched straight back to the airfield to find more, to find anything, to help. But there was nothing to do. Nothing more I could. I... We cannot truly help until the Nazis are gone. And so each night, I climb into a plane, and I fight mission after mission, and I won't stop, not until I am dead or they are gone.
Hi, this is Julia Letterer. This is a monologue from Bender and Brian by Trish Harnito, which was supposed to open in April at Jack in Brooklyn, New York. Not many know the true story of Bender and Brian. Judd Nelson and Anthony Michael Hall were not the first actors cast in John Hughes' iconic movie, The Breakfast Club. Initially, two other actors played the roles, but were fired after an altercation that occurred while filming the scene when they go to take their jackets off at the same time. This pivotal day was, well, pivotal for our original Bender and Brian, as they went on to live their lives together. This is their story. This monologue is performed by Jacob A. Ware. Hey, I won't stop you if you want to say thank me for dinner. You're welcome. That's server Annie, Annie from San Antonio. Now, I'm trying to choose my words very carefully. I have high expectations, so don't punish me for that, Brian. I'm not you. I'm not happy sitting around doing biology things, letting the constant swell of mediocrity swirl around me, seep into my pores, because do you know what happens when you let that in? All you'll identify with, all that you'll be drawn to, will be very mediocre places, places like San Antonio, where Annie is from. San Antonio with that fucking river walk people are always talking about. Does that sound good? D does it? Son! Get up! Let's hit the river walk early! Come on, son! Hey! Up for a barge ride? Oh, hey, fella! Hey, mister! You wanna buy a ticket for a barge ride? Paddle, paddle, paddle! See the sights! You gotta piss? Piss in the river! Should we eat there? Should we eat there? Should we eat there? How about there? It simply never, ever stops. Son! Do you like margaritas? Hey, take this beer and shove it in your margarita. It's fucking delicious! I looked deep into Annie from San Antonio's eyes and I saw the fires of hell, Brian. Blobs of people holding hands and strolling through 11 miles of seafood risotto and beef lava nachos from the Rainforest Cafe. But this, this Rainforest Cafe is special. Of all the Rainforest Cafes throughout the land, this is Annie's favorite. It's where she started bussing tables at just 14. It's where a line cook trailblazer pressed her up against the wall in the walk-in freezer, kissing her for the first time where she became the youngest safari guide waiter at just 16. It boosted her confidence just enough to start adding the tip to the European tables checks. I'd rather die a thousand deaths, die a thousand deaths, than move to fucking San Antonio if I was interested in a boat ride, which for the record I think it's pretty clear that I'm absolutely not, but say I was. You'd think I'd go to motherfucking San Antonio and take a boat on that river where all there is are little tables and chairs and people sitting, eating, shoving, faces with shit while boats putter up that dirty ass river all day? That shit is brown as fuck. Shit! My classic cut trench coat. I left it at the restaurant.
Hi there. My name is Cara Batiste. This is an excerpt from The Agency by Leo Romeo. The Agency was supposed to premiere in June at Project Y Theater Company in New York City. In The Agency, Ani is an aspiring actress who's moved to New York City and taken a job at a rental agency where lonely clients can hire actors to impersonate their friends and loved ones. This monologue is performed by Ella Dershowitz. Hi, Mom. It's me. It's Ani. I'm still in New York, but I'm thinking of coming back home. I'm thinking it might be a big mistake to be here. Duck and I, we broke up, and I haven't been getting cast, and I got this job, this crazy... I've been working for a rental agency, you probably think, but it's not like being an escort. I did it because I thought I could help people, make people feel better. But now I'm starting to feel like maybe there's something wrong with thinking... I mean, if everything can be replaced, if everyone can be replaced, then we don't try to fix anything. We just throw it away, and then, I mean, we can buy everything, right? Anything we want, we can order it on demand. Something breaks, and an hour later, a drone comes and brings a new one. And that's great. It's so great, but everything's made of plastic. And now the whole ocean's full of the plastic we've used, and animals are eating the plastic, and they're still hungry. They're starving, even though their guts are full of bags and straws and soda bottles. And if that's what happens when plastic gets thrown away, then what about people? When people get thrown away, what happens then? My name is Rachel Elise Johnson. I am introducing a moment from a musical titled Notes and Letters, written and composed by the amazing Annabelle Reback. Notes and Letters was originally scheduled to open at Underscore Theater in Chicago, Illinois, this April. This is Isn't It Funny from Notes and Letters, which is sung by Olivia in the show. It's a header heart song for the character, performed by Annabelle Reback. so far They hop on the moon or ride a star Isn't it funny they drop everything on a dime They don't waste time And isn't it strange my father was that way too 
oddball day in June Said he'd go to Chicago and make a new life And that I would follow soon Alone I came in 1902 And isn't it funny the priest and I Walked up to his door at the exact same time Isn't it funny and strange how fast people go How quick things change There's this thing that happens when we cross over. It's called 
In our language, we call it, um, uh, anyway, it's this thing that happens where we can sometimes lose connections. Oh, to the fairy world, I mean. We get fewer bars. It's harder to hear home. And spells don't come as easy. We get to... I don't know. I remember one of us. She was on a mission. Deep field work, you know? Undercover. By the time she got back, she couldn't even... There was just no... She wasn't there. Not like when she left. Ugh, there's a word for it. Don't help me. Uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. It was like her clothes didn't fit. She was the wrong key for every lock. It was like her shoes didn't fit, but really, the ground didn't fit. She couldn't remember words for things. I've been here a long time. But we found her. After all the time we've waited, she's out there. We just need to make contact. We just need to make ourselves known. I wonder if she knows about us. I wonder if she'll be more like us or like them. I wonder if she, like the others, has... It's like becoming untethered. It's like becoming untethered. It's called... It's called... I forgot. playwright and podcaster David J. Lohr, and I'm introducing a moment from Where the Mountain Meets the Sea by Jeff Augustine. This had to close before its opening in April at the Humana Festival of New American Plays in Louisville, Kentucky. In Where the Mountain Meets the Sea, a Haitian immigrant named Jean takes a once-in-a-lifetime road trip out west. Decades later, his son Jonah heads east, following his route in reverse, and discovers he's inherited his father's love of Appalachian folk music. Separated by time, yet side by side, the two men trace their journeys and the complicated bond they share. This piece is performed by Alan Washington. My father died in Miami while I was falling in love with a married man in L.A. He was a homosexual, so it was okay. Not okay, but you know what I mean. We met in some rich woman's backyard. She was a humanitarian, I was told. One of those active, lick envelopes, go organize, philanthropic humanitarians. It was her birthday and I was a guest. Well, the guest of my friend. 
a guest in her beautiful multi-million dollar home where surprisingly there were many people of color and we were all in the backyard fire roaring christmas lights strung listening to this band folk band play a husband and wife duo i never liked folk music i associate it with grief my dad would play folk every year on the anniversary of my mom's death. He would lock himself in his bedroom after drinking half a bottle of Haitian rum. He didn't think I could hear him crying. But there I was, listening to folk, drinking shitty local whiskey when he, the married man, sat next to my friend. Now, he didn't strike me at first. Truthfully, I thought he was straight. But then he whispered something in my ear. You're dripping. <laughs> there was a crack in my glass, and I looked him in his eyes to say thank you, and they were blue. A kind of blue I have only seen once in my life. In Haiti, the ocean, with my dad. This married man was older. Twenty years older. Mm, and he was a ginger. Ooh, I had a thing for gingers and daddies. <laughs> we, we started talking and I learned that he was a writer, a novelist, fiction, queer, with a handlebar mustache. And the text print on his phone was so large he could only read one at a time, two if they were short. And he couldn't find his reading glasses. And he was beautiful, smart, dreamy, Fit, looking at me, touching my shoulder politely, gave me a ride home before rushing to his husband's drag show, a show where he played all of the village men, stripping down as he went along. Ugh. Ooh, I wish I could have seen it. <laughs> I was seeing someone, I should add, and we were open, open to sex, but not to falling in love, but I fell in love with him, this married man, Carl. And we loved for many weeks in L.A. A ginger, Haiti, ocean eyes, queer novelist. Daddy. We fell in love drinking shitty whiskey, listening to folk music under the L.A. liberal American stars. And then my daddy died. My actual daddy, my Haitian dad. And I was... Sad, because I had to leave Carl, and my dad will never know Carl. Will never know the man I was in an open relationship with, know what an open relationship is, know that I'm gay, know me.
Hi, my name is Jules Odendahl-James. I'm a co-founder of Bulldog Ensemble Theater in Durham, North Carolina. This is a scene from A Doll's House, newly adapted by Emily Dedinger, from the original by Henrik Ibsen. It was originally slated to be in rep and in conversation with the acting company's adaptation of Laura Cather's My Antonia this spring. This adaptation moves the story to 19th century Nebraska, and all the characters are immigrants. In this scene, Christine is played by Patricia Noonan, and Nora is played by Marion Lee. How do you do, Nora? How do you do? You don't recognize me. No, I'm sorry. Oh, wait, is it? Oh, my God. Christine! Hello, Nora. To think of not recognizing... Goodness, you've changed. It's been six, seven years? No, not that long. When did you get here? The eight o'clock train. This morning? In the middle of winter? How plucky of you. Just in time for Christmas. Uh, We're going to have so much fun. Let me take your coat. Oh, your hands are freezing. Uh, Come closer to the fire and warm yourself. There. Now you look almost like your old self. Although a little paler and perhaps, I hope you don't mind me saying, a trifle thinner? Oh, yes, and much, much older. No, not that much older. Okay, well, maybe a little bit older. I heard about your husband's passing. I I meant to write. I really did. I I don't know why I didn't. I understand. It's so awful of me. How long has it been since his death? Two years. Two years? And he left you with nothing? Not a penny. And no children? No children. So, nothing at all? Not even any sorrow or grief to live on. How is that possible? It sometimes happens. Ah, so you're quite alone then, you poor thing. I have two lovely children. You can't see them now. They're out with their nurse, Anne-Marie, but mm, tell me more about you. I I want to hear everything. Mm, There's not much to tell, truthfully. I'd rather hear more about you. Oh, no, no, I shouldn't be selfish today. Yes, well, I... Oh, well, there is one thing I must tell you. Do you know we've just had a bit of good luck? My husband has been made the managing director of the First National Bank. How lucky. A lawyer's profession is so unpredictable, especially if he won't take on unsavory cases. Naturally, Torvald's never been willing to do that, and I quite agree with him. He starts in the new year, and then we'll have a great big salary and lots of commissions. Oh, we can live quite differently in the future. That's marvelous. Do just as we please. God, I'm relieved. So relieved. It will be splendid to have heaps and heaps of money and not have to worry. It's delightful to have what one needs. No, not what one needs. Heaps and heaps of money. Still the same little spendthrift, I see. Mm, That's what Torvald calls me, too. But Nora Nora is not as silly as you might think. We haven't been in a position to waste money these last few years. We've both had to work. You, too. Odds and ends, needlework, embroidery, weaving, that sort of thing. And other things as well.
Hi, this is Tim Douglas. I'm introducing the opening monologue from The Refuge play by Nathan Allen Davis. It was scheduled for a world premiere at the McCarter Theater in Princeton, New Jersey. If you could go back in time and visit multiple generations of your family, what questions would you ask? In this passionate and funny drama, The Refuge Plays explores the prevailing power of home, despite a family's mysterious and complex past. This monologue is performed by Heather Alicia Sims as the character Gail. Just as the monologue begins, Gail sits up. She spins herself out of bed, takes a tobacco pipe out of the dresser drawer. She lights it and smokes. Rope. You know about it. How when you squeezing it, when you holding something up, holding up something heavy like a car or a house. Yeah. You can will yourself to hold on, but your hands, they gonna shut down. Stop working. Your will ain't enough. That's not a pleasant thing to know. That'll keep you up at night. I ain't fitting to make the bed just yet. This is my time to do what I do. This time between dawn and sunrise, I stand alone and smoke my dead-ass husband's pipe and watch. When you watch in the dark like this, Shapes form, thoughts form, and thoughts, sooner or later, they find their ways, don't they? They find their familiar ways. Same old thoughts, same old doubts, same old questions swimming around in your heart, and they don't never tire out. Did we do the right thing? Staying out here, trying to keep ourselves a step to the side of the world. That's my daughter over there, and my grandson, and my dead-ass husband's mother. It's hard not to love people when they're sleeping. Not that I don't love them when they awake. It's just that ain't none of them capable of holding that rope with me. So you and I can steal this little time, these little minutes. But when the sun rises, I... so full of gratitude to everybody who contributed to this episode to all the playwrights who let me use their work all the actors who really hustled to get these recordings done in time and everybody who called in to record those introductions that was amazing 
there was like 50 people, almost 50 people who contributed to this episode. And I am so profoundly happy and uh, really appreciative of everybody. So thank you for that. And thank you for listening to this. If you're a first time listener, there are probably two dozen episodes where I sit down with an amazing playwright and have an hour long conversation about their lives and their work. And uh, so you've got a lot to, to listen to. And I hope you do. If you have not yet done so, and if you feel motivated, please go rate and review the show uh, through whichever channel you listen to podcasts. Do podcasts get listened to through channels? Whatever. iTunes. Whatever you would call iTunes and the other variations of iTunes. So please go do that. I'd love it. Uh, let's see. The interstitial music from this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions, and the theme song for the subtext is by International Pen Pal. Thank you, as always, to Rob at American Theatre Magazine. And thank you once again for listening. Take care, everybody.